It's ironic. Science finally knows enough about science to disprove itself. But as the Norsemen well knew, that is the fate of all things, just like their gods who in the end must annihilate themselves. From 1931 to 1956, the legendary French anthropologist Marcel Guerrero, along with Germaine Dieterlin, a brilliant and highly accomplished anthropologist in her own right, studied a West African tribe called the Dogon. After 18 years of studies, they made their first breakthrough into the Dogon's secrets in 1950 and published Un System Sudanus Desiredus. What was in that document should have changed this world, but it was quickly countered by those in academia who are paid to keep this world just the way it is. What Grael and Dieterlin found in their quarter century of research, shockingly enough, as the holographic universe had not yet been proposed, was a source of its projection. They found the black sun in the shadow of Timbuktu, the ancient seat of the Anglophile's most abyssal nightmare. There dwelt the Dogon, pun intended. What the dog people believe explains how the holographic universe works and gives a dissertation of the rock carving in Australia's Blue Mountains, almost 7,000 miles from the eastern coastline of Africa. Nobody noticed then. They haven't yet. They are still trying to explain how a tribe of primitive black farmers from Africa knew more about astronomy than the 20th century's best white scientists. All they can come up with to date is two of the greatest anthropologists in the world the world has ever produced lied and falsified all their data. The proof, they cite, for this kind of unprecedented scholastic slander is the research of Dutch Mormon and neophyte anthropologist Walter E.A. Van Beck. Van Beck converted to Mormonism in college when he started studying anthropology. Van Beck's research consisted of dropping in on the Dogon almost a half century after Grael and Dieterlin, who studied them when they were still had their independence through France. By the time Van Beek got there, the Dogon lived in an Islamic state at the same latitude in Africa that in a little over a decade after he published would give the world Dafar. In Dafar in 2003, Arab Sudanese Muslims displaced and murdered close to half a million black Sudanese infidels. Van Beek asked a few questions about a secret tradition that the Dogon already knew was anathema to their Muslim overlords, then proceeded to publish a paper in 1991 that amounts to nothing more than an ad hominem attack on the two great anthropologists. In it, he repeatedly states that he could not confirm any of Grayell's and Dieterlin's findings and insinuates that they made the whole thing up. Although seemingly written with a crayon, Van Beek's paper has been given utterly unjustified academic status. This type of slander is typical of the Mormons, a powerful and extremely wealthy Christian sect. The Mormons act out their pathological hatred of blacks academically. It is the foundation of Mormon theological doctrine that the Lamanites, or blacks, once wiped out the Nephites, or whites, in the America. According to the Mormons, both whites and blacks had settled America by way of Israel. They believe the Native Americans are the descendants of blacks. The Mormons also believe in and have been asked repeatedly by the ADL to stop baptizing their favorite dead Jews so that they too can go to heaven and become gods like good Mormons. The rest of the Church of the Latter-day Saints' strange customs and beliefs has been well documented. 
Every 60 years, Cyrus or Sijay Tolo, star of Yasigi, to the Dogon, appears between two mountain peaks and the Dogon celebrates Sigu, which can last several years. The last Sigu began in 1967 and the festivities didn't end until 1973. Cyrus, a star in the Canis Major in the Southern Celestial Firmament, is pronounced Sirius in Latin, and this is derived from the ancient Greek word Syros, which means glowing or scorcher. It is the brightest star in the night sky, just about twice as bright as the next brightest, Canopus in the southern constellation of Carina. As it rose over the horizon of the Mesopotamian Valley, Cyrus was known as the Dog of Orion, because it always trailed closely behind the constellation of Orion. Called Nephila by the ancient inhabitants of a city currently known as Aleppo, Cyrus is now known in the West simply as the Dog Star. Nephila was considered to be the origin of Nephalim, or watches. The angels in the Bible came down to earth to interbreed with the daughters of men and teach the human race the art of civilization. As a reward for their altruism, the children of the watches were drowned in the deluge by a giggling Yahweh over the objections of the prophet Enoch. In the homeland of the Norse, Cyrus, known as Lokabrana, or Loki's torch, to the Tohono Odom, a Native American tribe who lived south, just south of the Hopi in Arizona's baking Sonoran Desert. Cyrus is a dog that stalks the mountain sheep. In the East, they have other names for Cyrus. The Chinese call it Tinalang, or Celestial Wolf. In Sanskrit, Cyrus is known simply as Lublaka, the hunter. In springtime, around the Mediterranean and North Africa, Cyrus sinks below the horizon and disappears from the night sky for 70 days. Its reappearance in ancient Egypt right before sunrise on the eastern horizon toward the latter part of July heralded not only the morning, but also the flooding of the banks of the Nile. Cyrus was both yearned for and feared because it could cause great destruction and at the same time brought with it the rich volcanic topsoil of the Ethiopian highlands to fertilize the Nile Delta. The fertility of the Nile Valley was the driving mechanism behind the great Egyptian civilizations. To the ancient Greeks, the first appearance of Cyrus right before the morning heralded the coming of the dog days of summer. The Greeks feared the sweltering heat of those days under the, its influence, days of madness and dogs, wilted crops, weakened warriors, and lustful women. To the aborigine of Australia's Blue Mountains, July was the time where Cyrus set right after the sun ro and rose right before the dawn to announce the morning. When system Sedanus de Cyrus then introduces Potolo, star Fonoye, which orbits perpendicular to the horizon of Sigitolo. When Potolo is, is closest to Sigitolo, it is at its most brilliant, and when it's further away, it gives off a scintillation that makes it appear as many stars. In 1844, a German astronomer observed the telltale irregularities of the motion of Cyrus through the firmament, indicating it is a binary star system. When two objects circle around each other in the night sky, 21st century scientists assert that this is due to their gravitational pull on each other. But no one has ever proven how gravity works. No one, of course, except the Marquise de Laplace. 
The late 18th century French mathematician had neither need nor use for intervention from Newton's divine artificer to keep the universe from destroying itself. Instead of postulating that gravity was a result, result of an attraction between two points, which would require periodic adjustments by God to keep the heavens from self-destruction, as Newton insisted, Laplace said the universe was held together by a fluidic field. Laplace then went on to prove it with a series of eloquently presented equations in Exposition du Système du Monde and Mécanique Celeste. His breakthrough mathematics and theory, theory analytical disprobabilities published in 1812 would lead to the use of the probability equations that would culminate with the math of 20th century Germany. He was the first man to recognize that somewhere in the universe there must exist black holes, whose attraction was so great that not even light could resist the summoning of their relentless call. Objects do not attract each other. They distort the space-time continuum through their mass. It's, it's this distortion that is perceived and measured as a force. It's just a word. There is no gravity, as Newton described it, or any omnipotent, omnipresent God, as Judeo-Christians describe him. Binary star systems were, by then, already well known to scientists, but whatever Cyrus was rotating around, it could not be seen with the lenses available at the time. Dubbed Cyrus B by academia, the dark star's existence would not be optically confirmed until 1862, when a prototype 18.5-inch refracting telescope being field-tested by its American inventor. Scintillation usually occurs through atmospheric conditions, but in the holographic paradigm, it is the collision of spherical frequency waves that generate photons, the points of light that constitute what academia erroneously call particles. As Cyrus and Cyrus B perpetually circle around each other in the inky darkness, spherical frequency waves are exactly what is being generated, just like they are with this world's sun. The Dogon told Rael that Polo Tolo is the origin of all things, and its contents are ejected, ejected by centrifugal force and infinitely small particles, which upon exiting Polo Tolo can grow to the same size as Polo Tolo within a day. They told him that Polo Tolo was the smallest of all things, yet the heaviest of all stars. They calculate the orbit of Polo Tolo around Siji Tolo in doubles, which is a hundred years for every two orbits, and it runs and it turns on itself every year. The Dogon believed Polo Tolo is white, whereas Siji Tolo is red. Most of that will be the subject of endless conjecture by guys who wear glasses an inch thick, never in their pathetic excuses for a life slept with a cheerleader. They th can't think outside of a textbook. It's all possible, but not provable. Other than mapping the movements of points of light through the firmament, most of what is left in astronomy is a quintessential pseudoscience. It operates outside all established laws of empirical science. Its current best-known proponent is Hollywood actor Morgan Freeman. As it is now practiced, 21st century's astronomy's founding father, Carl Sagan, dressed and acted more like a Detroit pimp than an Ivy League scientist. To borrow a quip from Frank Zapper about the relationship of politics to the military-industrial complex, NASA is the entertainment division of Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL. 
JPL is an organization founded through the California Institute of Technology by Master Magi Jack Parsons and Theodore von Parman, blood heir to the Mariella Plague, one of the two most pow powerful cableists to ever walk the earth. The other was Alistair Crowley, Jack Parsons' mentor in magic. Von Karman's scientific credentials include being von Neumann's best friend and fellow Jewish-Hungarian aristocrat. The two came over practically as a package deal, and neither said or did anything without consulting the other. Optical observation has determined, has determined that Cyrus and Cyrus B orbit each other at a separation of about 50.1 years. As they do, they emit an unexpectedly high level of infrared radiation, with Cyrus B being brighter in the infrared spectrum than Cyrus, which Cyrus, than Cyrus. Cyrus B has been described by scientists as a white dwarf. It's about the same size as the Earth, and by 1910, its mass had been determined by observation of its binary orbit around Cyrus to be about the same as the Sun, making it a million times denser than the Sun. A tablespoon of Cyrus B would weigh five tons. Cyrus was described as a red by Roman astronomer and astrologist Claudius Podolini. His observations were backed by the writings of the poet Aratus, an orator Cicero, and General Germanicus. Seneca the Younger described Cyrus as being a deeper red than even Mars. These observations by notable historical figures at the dawn of the Taman era are backed by Lombard prayer manuscripts from as late as the 8th century. During the same period, Cyrus was the standard star for the color white to Chinese astronomers. In present times, Cyrus glows a vivid white blue in every far-off corner of the world. But to the naked eye, it sometimes appears to be flashing with red, white, and blue hues when near the horizon. According to Einstein's general rel relativity, because of its extreme density, the light from Cyrus B should be gravitationally redshifted. This was confirmed in 1925. Gravitational redshifting is when electromagnetic radi radiation emanating in spherical frequency waves from a source in the gravitational field is reduced in frequency when seen from a place that is, has a higher gravitational potential. Redshifting is a direct result of gravitational time dilation, which is the difference of elapsed time between events to observers at different distances from the gravitational mass they are observing. This manifests itself as a change in the color perception of light toward the red part of the light spectrum as the wavelength is increased. An increase in frequency observed from the position that is lower gravitational potential than the source results in a shift to the blue part. Due to extreme density, the only thing with a higher gravitational potential than a white dwarf would be a neutron star, a dark star, or a black hole. System Sedanus de Cyrus goes on to say there is another star the Dogon call M.A.A., or Sorghum female. It is four times lighter than Polo Tolo and follows a vast trajectory in the same direction and at the same time, also taking 50 years to complete an orbit. Their positions are where their rays make right angles. M.A.A. emits rays which have the quality of solar rays and is accompanied to its orbit by a satellite named Neon Tolo, in English, the Star of Woman. Data began piling up at the dawn of the 20th century. 
observational as well as physical and dynamical indications that led to the hypothesis of the existence of a third body in the system. By 1932, it was pretty well established through orbital calculations that something was evolving roughly every 6.3 years around either Cyrus or Cyrus B. During the previous decade, a tiny star had been sighted about 20 times by some of the best astronomers in the business. However, the star was like a phantom. Nobody ever saw it twice or long enough to confirm it. By 1995, using additional data and three different systems of math, figures of 6.4 years, 6, and finally 6 using Fourier analysis, were arrived at for a complete revolution of the as-of-yet-unidentified star. Further analysis of the possible orbital scenarios indicates that stable orbits with a period of about 6 years exist only around Cyrus A. Because it cannot be optically observed, the mass of Cyrus C would have to be about 20 or 30 times larger than Jupiter, which is the bare minimum to support a thermonuclear fusion. What the math and the optical observations says about the three-star system of Cyrus, unless of course, unless of course the third star in the Cyrus system is a black hole, or what Newtonian physics calls a dark star. Because Einstein was ill-equipped to argue with the math of the Marquis de Laplace, black holes are a generic prediction of general relativity. No one's ever actually seen a black hole. How could you? The black hole is a point in the space-time continuum where gravitational effects are so strong that not even electromagnetic radiation, such as light, can escape. There is nothing to see. But in general relativity, black holes, a black hole does have mass and angular momentum, so its presence can be detected through its gravitational interaction with other stars and its effects on electromagnetic radiation, such as light. In 1974, Stephen Hawking, by applying quantum field theory to general relativity, predicted that black holes would emit small amounts of thermal radiation, light, in the perfect black body spectrum. Many other famous mathematicians and scientists have since verified Hawking's results. According to general relativity, there is a singularity in the center of a black hole that is infinitely dense. Once across the black hole's event horizon, nothing can escape that singularity. The inevitable can be prolonged by an object accelerating away, maybe even by jumping through time, but sooner or later it will reach freefall and be torn apart in a process so violent that is sometimes referred to as spaghettification or the noodle effect by scientists. In the end, it is crushed into something so dense it is infinite. In general relativity, there is a yawning black hole in the center of the galaxy, sustained by the essences of all the worlds that it has destroyed. Everything corporeal is destined to one day be swept over its event horizon. The black hole sits like an ever-expanding open drain at the bottom of the ocean. All matter must, in due time, be crushed into infinite density that, needs its pri- that feeds its primordial singularity. It is the fate of all that is to be crushed back into what H.P. Lovecraft called the crawling chaos. There is rel- really not, There really is not much difference between the black hole and a wormhole if any at all, 
In relativity, they both have a singularity at the center of all that causes their event to rise and ends by being crushed into Lovecraft's crawling chaos. In 1988, scientists working out of Caltech found loopholes in the math that predict singularities, and Lorentzian transversible wormholes became a mathematical probability. Lorentzian transversible wormholes allow travel in both directions from one part of the universe to another very quickly. They also allow travel from one universe to another. According to the math that JPL uses, teleportation is far more likely than dissolution for an object that passes through a wormhole or black hole. To quote well-known television physicist Michiel Kaku, there is no reason why an object could not pass freely back and forth. In fact, for one solution, the trip through a wormhole would be no worse than riding in a plane. The Dogon believed that Cyrus B. once occupied the place where our sun is now. 21st century astronomers object. They say that isn't, this is impossible. But it should be apparent by now that the Dogon know more about the universe than 21st century astronomy. The thousand-year war truth has waged against academia and all other agents of the great Abrahamic lie ends with the Dogon. The Dogon are the remnants of an ancient Egypt. The Egyptians were black. To paraphrase Aleister Crowley in the holy books, they were black as Nubian slaves so they could absorb more of the light of God. It is fitting to paraphrase Crowley because he himself was a product of the Plymouth Brethren the same rabidly anglophile and ruthlessly committed fundamental Christian sect that gave the world Sir William Matthew Flinders Pitrie. Sir Flinders Pitrie was the most prominent archaeologist of the 19th century and the British Empire's academic heavyweight champion, despite the fact that Wallace Budge was a far better scientist. Pitrie's racism and Christian fanaticism has been, been immortalized in books. Many have chuckled over the fact that when Petri died, he would donate his head to science, and science would lose it. But Petrie and all his academic allies were peddling directly in the face of far more accomplished scientists like Frenchman Auguste Mariette and Gaston Masparo, along with their English counterpart, the great Wallace Budge, was Anglo-Israelism. Since the day of John D., Anglo-Israelism has been the unseen current driving the tides of blood and war that swept first England, then America, to world economy. It is the fanatical belief by the British and their progeny that they are the lineal descendants of the Israelites and that the throne of England can be traced back to the house of David. Therefore, the people of the British Isles are Yahweh's chosen people in the Bible. Anglo-Israelism's adherents believe that the ten tribes were transferred to Babylon about 720 B.C., and simultaneously, according to Herodotus, the Scythians, including the tribe of Sakai, appeared in the same district. The progenitors of the Saxons afterward passed over into Denmark, the mark or country of the tribe of Dan, and thence to England. Another branch of the tribe of Dan, which remained in ships, made its appearance in Ireland under the title of Dohanta Dananan. Tefe, a descendant of the royal house of David, arrived in Ireland according to the native annuals, in 580 B.C. From her was descended Fergus Moore, king of Argyle, an ancestor of Queen Victoria, who has thus fulfilled the prophecy, the line of David shall rule over forever and ever. The Irish branch of the Danites brought with them Jacob's stone, which has always been used as coronation stone 
of the kings of Scotland and England and is now preserved in Westminster Abbey. Somewhat inconsistently, the prophecy that the Canaanites would trouble Israel applied to the Irish. The land of Zarth, to which the Israelites were transplanted, is identified with Ireland by dividing the former name into two parts, the former of which is Eretz, or land, and latter, Ar, or Ira. As agents of Anglo-Israelism, what Petri and the rest of academia were teaching at Western universities was a systematic destruction of an entire race's heritage in the name of another race's fantasy. No one ever really got it, except R.A. Schwaller de Lubbock's. There are things in Egypt far older than Egypt. The institutional racism is blatant, and it is unprecedented in everything that is known of Greek and Roman history. The Romans considered the Ethiopians a people beloved by the gods, but even for the most committed Anglophile, there is a blind rage, a fanatical meanness to it that borders on stupidity. Blacks are not intelligent enough to have built anything besides a mud hut, and surely an unknown dynastic race, a fine, lighter complexion race that invaded Egypt from the south in pre-dynastic times, conquering the inferior and exhausted indigenous dark-skinned savages. This Aryan race of fine white men, no doubt the Israelites of the Bible, then slowly introduced dynastic civilization through their interbreeding with the local mulatto race, and culminated in from the fourth dynasty on with the building of all the great edifices of Egypt. Viewed under this lens of religious fanaticism, Colonel Howard Weiss's sacking and defiling of the Giza Plateau for the middle of the 19th century and academia's enshrinement of him for his acts of wanton vandalism, although still totally unacceptable, are at least understandable. As is Thomas Young's forgery when he inserted the glyph for Ra to complete Kafra's name on the dream steel. Literacy had always been frowned upon by Christianity, but with the advent of the printing press, it became unavoidable. If a world that knew how to read was ever to believe the outlandish lies that are told in the Bible, it wouldn't do to have evidence that contradicted the Bible's narrative, staring that newly literate world dead in the face. Dr. J.J. Hurtock was Nassau's guru in the latter quarter of the 20th century, and the man the authors of the Stargate conspiracy point to as the supreme puppeteer of the Giza Plateau in that same period. During that stretch of time in the 80s and 90s, Hurtock was secretly teaching close friends the pyramids are hundreds of thousands of years old. France was pushing back at Anglo-Israelism, the deliberate dissembling and falsification of history with Auguste Mariette and Gaston Maspero, who in tandem managed to control the Museum of Egyptian Antiquities until World War I. Germany was already at war with the Jewish impersonators, but even before that, as the center of pan-Babylonianism in Europe, German scholars had quietly seated and trained a blue-blooded scholar like James Henry Breasted. Breasted could not only just be could not just be dismissed like a common academic. Not with friends like Gertrude Bell, who was the British master spy that, along with Lawrence of Arabia, established the Hashemite dynasties. Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon, the men charged with looting the tomb of Tutankhamun. Lord Allenby, the man who would wrest control of the Middle East from the Ottomans, and the Arab leader Fasel, whom they would eventually crown King of Iraq. The Battle of the Pyramids was coming to a head by the time 
a seizure of prone prone of time a seizure prone psychic with a masonic pedigree named Edgar Case showed up promoting Anglo-Israelism as a journey through Atlantis and a time forgotten to the New World Order. War had already broken out between the Saxons, a war which would finish the Ottoman Empire for good and leave the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Jews in complete control of the Giza Plateau and the rest of the Middle East. Control of the Giza Plateau is maintained to this day through, through the Association for Research and Enlightenment, ARE, a legacy of the seizure-prone psychic. Control of the rest of the Middle East is maintained through instigation of perpetual war and unrest. France was still pushing back hard when Harvey Spencer Lewis would found the ancient mystical order of Rosicrucis, or Amaric, in America on behalf of the French Rosicrucians. In the 30s, Amaric, allied with big money, started printing ancient maps detailing a network of tunnels and chambers beneath the Giza Plateau and distributing them to anyone who bought their books. Lewis, of course, claimed that they, they were ancient Rosicrucian secrets, but French archaeologists Emile Berez had been to the Giza Plateau in 1926, almost a decade before the maps were published. Berez, during a period from 26 onward, had done extensive explorations beneath the plateau that were never published for academia. At the same time, Lewis was peddling his maps. Garel and Dieterlin showed up at the Dogon's doorstep. In the shadow out of time, Lovecraft wrote about a man troubled by strange dreams and visions of a race hundreds of thousands of years old. They had driven an even older race that had long preyed on them into the labyrinth of the Earth's interior. The most ancient race had long since evolved to prefer the labyrinth and no longer needed anything from the surface, but they had never forgotten that they required revenge. It is in Australia's great western desert where man, to his eternal horror, finds the entrance to the labyrinth. If Anglo-Israelism's has, has a poet in his H.P. Lovecraft. They are not ignorant of the occult's deepest secrets. It was their great high priest, Charles Piazzi Smythe, who orchestrated Wayman Dixon and Dr. James Grant's discovery of the shafts in the Queen's Chamber in 1872. Dixon and Grant knew almost exactly where those shafts were, shafts that were walled up before history begins. Occult knowledge like that shows there are those in Anglo-Israelism that know their way around the Lambeth all too well. It was Lovecraft's job to take those things which they knew were in the Lambeth and which they saw as their enemies and paint them in colors of the most abyssal horror the human soul is capable of. Lovecraft did this with almost supernatural efficiency in stories like Shadow Over Innsmouth and the Dunwich Horror and many, many more. In The Call of Shatulu, Lovecraft creates his own mythos about the old ones and in unspeakable terror, they are poised to bring back to the world of white Christians when the stars, on an inevitable day of doom, align in their favor. Lovecraft saw ter terrifying conspiracies to bring back these old ones everywhere he looked. But outside of bat-wing humanoids and certain blue-blooded families sequestered around the New England countryside, Lovecraft saw secret societies among the colored races as the primary high priests and harbingers of the old ones. Lovecraft detests and fears all dark-skinned people as the people of Chitulu and the old ones. When Herbert West reanimated, Lovecraft 
expresses his revulsion at the idea of bringing a black man back to life when he writes, and Buck Robinson, the Harlem smoke, the Negro had been knocked out, and a moment's examination showed us he would permanently remain so. He was a loathsome gorilla-like thing with abnormally long arms, which I could not help but calling forelegs, and a face that conjured up thoughts of unspeakable Congo secrets and tom-tom poundings under the eerie moon. The body must have looked even worse in life, but the world holds many ugly things. In 1939, Frederick Slatter, the president of the Australian Archaeological Research and Education Society, and an eminent academic, came across an artificially constructed mound that he described as the Stonehenge of Australia. He claimed that the mound is one of the oldest, I should say the oldest forms of forms of temples in the world and dates back to the advent of first man. He felt the positioning of the rocks, signs and symbols on the mound may have been the basis of all knowledge, all science, all history, and all forms of writing. A decade later, the Lubbock's would echo similar sentiments about hieroglyphics in the temple in man, when he insisted that they should instead be referred to by the Egyptian term Midu Nitiru, the Greek translation of which hieroglyphs distorts the Egyptian meaning. Midu Nitiru is the nitters or principles conveyed by a sign. The Lubbocks was arguing that the hieroglyphics themselves were Jungian archetypes that were being mistranslated because this was not being accounted for. A year after Slater's initial discovery, government officials contract contacted the farmer whose land Slater had found the mound on and told him that his land was in danger of being confiscated to protect the artifacts that Slater had been exuberantly discussing with his colleagues. In a preemptive strike, the farmer bulldozed the artifacts into dust, and Slater was left with only his notes. As the founder and president of the Australian Archaeological Society, Slater was more than qualified to academically interpret the meaning of the mound. The translation he came up with was the creation story that ended by saying, man came to earth through darkness and from light of life that shines far off. Almost 70 years later, Aboriginal tribal leader Kevin Gavin Duncan relates, the wisdom keepers on almost the exact same note, we are the extraterrestrials. Our body is made up of this earth, but our spirit comes from the morning star. We come from another place, from another world. Academia shrieks that they are a fraud at the mere mention of the Gosford glyphs. But the fact is the glyphs are far more, uh, are not far from beyond me in the Brisbane Water National Park. They are clearly hieroglyphic and have also clearly been tampered with. People who have researched them are claiming that partial deciphering by experts tells of pilgrimages made from pre-dynastic Egypt to Australia that was a mecca to those who worshipped the old ones 5,000 years ago. The fact that it would be, respected, be expected for the Aborigines to maintain those glyphs and restored them when necessary over the last 5,000 years. That is what they do. That is their culture. Academia's summary rejection of the glyphs' authenticity on the grounds that they have been tampered with is not good science, but it is a good sign of academia's duplicity. From the very first days of 1770, Captain James Cook arbitrarily declared Australia terra nullis, a Latin term meaning nobody's land. Cook knew the land was inhabited. He was already shooting the natives. 
The designation is made even before, even more inexplicable by the fact that at the time of Cook's voyage, the British had already accepted the principles of native titles in, the, in their colonies. An Imperium proclamation in, in 1763 laid down that Native Americans owned their hunting grounds. Even if, even if it was an honest mistake, by 1790, as British colonizers moved inexorably inland and everywhere met fierce resistance from blacks already there, the days of genuine miscalculation were at an end. The concept of empty land was no more than a convenient fiction. By 1863, the pseudoscientific theories of Charles Darwin had been adapted to rationalize the final victory of the white races over the blacks, a euphemism for genocide of the colored races. The speech given at the time of Queensland Parliament articulates the prevailing sentiment among white Australians that the aboriginal population must eventually disappear entirely, as is surely a matter that the study of evolution, the study of biology, the study of ethnology would convince. The law of evolution says that the nigger shall disappear in an onward progress of the white man. This was no rhetorical speech. Whites had been acting out on this philosophy for almost a hundred years by then, and would continue to act out on it for almost a hundred more. Sustained efforts were made to breed the aborigine out of existence. Actual government policy was enacted, and Aborigine children were taken from their mothers and forcibly educated in the white man's ways. By the time the Aboriginal tribal elder, Kevin Gavi Duncan, stood in front of the ancient rock carving depicting Barami and gave his explanation for what the petroglyph meant, he is lucky that he even remembered Barami's name. A far better explanation would have included the three-star system of Cyrus, but the progenitor of three stars each text which came out of ancient Babylon as the earliest known star catalog. That is, that is what is under the moon in Bayami's left hand. At the end of the, of the cycle, Cyrus B., the source of this world, gets caught in the gravitational pull of Cyrus C., a black hole, and exchanges places with the sun. That is what the dagger symbolizes, the reversal of worlds. The boat off to the left is the boat which in the religion of the old ones carries the sun on its celestial journey. Frederick Slater had nailed it, which is why his evidence was immediately destroyed and everything he did or said after that marginalized by pasty-faced academics who couldn't get a job in 7-Eleven if this world was worked on merit. Australia is the ancient and venerable mecca of the old ones, the temple of the dog, the place where Cyrus the hunter the true morning star is also the evening star, the place where Lucifer is God, as he was always meant to be. As it stands right now, the human race has no worse an enemy than institutional academia, whose only job is to assemble its past. Those who seek solace in the embrace of a benevolent Christian God place their fate in the hands of an impotent chimera they fashioned from pieces of discarded sun gods. They condemn him, they strip him naked, they mock him, they torture him, then they nail him to a stick and murder him. The mesmerized minions now kneel before this craven images of this obscene blasphemy, singing, eat his body, drink his blood, and perpetuate this horror by forcing it upon their children. The Muslims are no better, if not even worse. They have taken the 114 meditational verses of the Gospel of Thomas, the foundation of Manichaeism, 
and turn them into a field manual for savagery. When Jesus walked the earth, if he ever did, forbidden knowledge was still available for those who sought it out. Alexander the Great was just such a man, a student of Aristotle and the son of a Macedonian king and a high priestess of the Dionysian mystery schools. Alexander was an initiate by birthright and conquered most of the known world in his insatiable quest to learn more. Scrolls from the far-flung corners of the East were the most priceless of the spoils appropriated by Alexander's invincible armies. The scrolls were gathered together in the library of Alexandria in Egypt. Although the library was accidentally burned by Julius Caesar in 48 BC, the manuscripts were saved and dispersed throughout the city. What was in most of those manuscripts gave rise to Gnosticism, a doctrine of self-enlightenment diametrically opposed to the Judaism of the Pharisees and their tyrannical God with his 613 commandments. Later, many of these tenets of the ancient religion were presented as parables and allegories in the teachings of Jesus. The Gospel of Thomas is the oldest known written record of those teachings. There are 114 verses. A few centuries later, Muhammad's Koran would be composed in 114 surahs. In the 13th verse, Jesus whispered something into the ear of Thomas. The other apostles, curious, questioned Thomas as to what Jesus told them, and he, that he could not tell them. Thomas replies to them that if he told them, they would pick up rocks to stone him, and the rocks would turn to fire and consume them. But it is known anyway what Jesus whispered into the ear of Thomas was Isaiah. 28.13, and the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. The priests of this deceitful God could not tolerate the likes of a Gnostic Jesus exposing their lies. A relentless campaign was launched to extinguish all traces of the fire where the light of the most ancient truth always burns. Paul dissembled everything the Gnostic Jesus had said. Irenaeus made the real Jesus a heretic in the name of the fake Judaic Jesus. And finally, Theodosius burned all that could be found in the manuscripts, which were the source of wisdom's wonders. When even that was not enough, Pope Innocent III unleashed his dogs of war. In what is called the Albanian Crusades, the brave knights of France slaughtered every man, woman, and child they could in the south of France. The Cathars, called Albanian for their preeminent city of Albi, bore witness to a very different Christos the Pope's, than the Pope's pathetic Jesus Christ. For centuries, all that seemed to remain of their testimony were rumors of a grail with the power to change the world and a knight who must quest for it. It was a desperate effort in genocide to wipe from the face of the earth the still flickering flames of Zarathustra's fire. It's said that when one of these battle-hardened princes' dad questioned the slaughter he was being asked to perpetuate on his own countrymen in the name of God, innocent quipped, kill them all and let God sort them out. Most painful of all, perhaps, is the ignorant slander in what has been a relentless campaign to vilify Lucifer's name and make it synonymous with evil by the very people who nailed God to a stick and ate him. Others have used Lucifer's eternal quest for a reckoning with a tyrant to validate their own avarice and depravity. 
In a reckoning, all accounts are settled, and no doubt they will all be held liable. The hour of that reckoning is now at hand. The equinox of the gods, those who have eyes to see, have been allowed to see the truth. Only they may enter the temple of the dog. The very same year World War II was concluded, the Gnostic tracts with Theodosius thought he had expunged from history as if by magic suddenly reappeared. The manuscripts, many of them fragmented, were unearthed by peasants scavenging ancient gravesites on the west bank of the Nile in the city of Nakamandai after being buried for almost two millennia. That is the story, but the fire of Zarathustra can never be completely extinguished. It was rekindled anew with the blood of valiant men spilled in the opening battle of a war whose last battle will be fought by the gods. The Dead Sea Scrolls, a 2,000-year-old Judean writings, started turning up the next year. They tell a tale of theological differences among the Jews at that time made the, made the apocalyptic carnage that was about to take place inevitable. The war scrolls actually tell, tell Jews how to dress for it. Pivotal to much of the writings are passages from the Torah called the Star Prophecy, a vision of the future revealed in Numbers 24-17, where a star will come out of Israel to smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. Jesus may have never made any resurrection, but then Jesus was only just a metaphor at best. What Jesus represents, the real Jesus unadulterated by the Vatican, has been resurrected in the Nagamandai tracks in the Dead Sea Scroll. All would be luminaries who read from that their good book without ever having bothered to learn Latin or Hebrew are no more than the metaphorical monkeys praying to a nuclear missile in the Planet of the Apes movie. Lucifer means light bearer in Latin. Cyrus, the morning star. In Hebrew, it is Hael. There is no historical evidence to prove that Jesus ever really existed, but there is much that proves Hael, the elder, did. He was born in Babylon in 110 BCE and died in Jerusalem in 10 CE. He was the greatest of all the Hebrew sages and quickly gained a following that rivaled the Pharisees of the temple. A story is still told among the rabbis about how when threatened by his teachings, which were diametrically opposed to their own, the Pharisees summoned Hillel to the temple. It was in the temple where the Shammai Pharisees, the high priests of the god of No, challenged the prophet of On about his knowledge of the Torah. Hillel told them he could sum the entire Torah up while standing on one leg. When the Shammai Pharisees told him to go ahead and do so, he stood on one leg, looked at them and said, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, then walked out of the temple, followed by his entourage. Rome would finally conclude its four-decade-long war with the Armenian Empire in 63 BCE, when Mithridates VI, at least as formidable, formidable as Hannibal, and known to history as the Poison King because of his fascination with poisons, fled to a stronghold above the Black Sea after being defeated in battle by Pompey. There the poison king would murder his son, king of the Crimean Scythians, for disloyalty. Then, rather than be taken by the Romans, he killed himself and his daughters. Sometime later that same year, Pompey would march his legions through the gates of Jerusalem, opened and welcomed by his own Jewish allies, and lay siege to the temple. He would sack it in a great slaughter shortly thereafter. Internecian warfare in and around Jerusalem, sometimes held in check only by Roman armies, would continue for almost a century and a half, 
culminating with the siege of Jerusalem in 70 CE. In vicious hand-to-hand combat between the various Jewish sects, women and children fighting right alongside the men, supplemented by gratuitous violence of the Roman legions, the temple was burned to the ground as it remains to this very day. I witnessed Josephus, a Jewish historian known for his integrity, put the number of dead at 1.1 million Jews in that incident alone. The Jews were never of one mind, let alone one God. Gershom Sloan was perhaps the most brilliant Hebrew scholar of the 20th century. He wrote that the greatest mystery of the Kabbalah was concealed in the true name of Lucifer. It is in Hebrew as Aeolith, Hashicha, Nuga, Kokab, which in translation means instrument that brings the light of the brilliant star. But many scriptural words in Hebrew are ambiguous, if not paradoxical. Aeolith means... Besides meaning instrument, it can also mean gazelle, and Jesus is referred to as a gazelle in various apocryphal and Gnostic texts, tracts. Even those who presume to edit and change the words of the teacher of righteousness in the synoptic gospels and the wicked priest, teller of lies himself, as Paul is repeatedly referenced in the Dead Sea Scrolls, dared not spew the blasphemy that today passes as Christianity. The morning star or Lucifer appears in the New Testament only twice. In fact, it only appears once in the Synoptic Gospels. In Peter 1.19, it is said, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as the light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Revelation 22.16, it is said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root of and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Revelation makes other more cryptic references that Jesus is Lucifer. When Jesus says in 22.13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This theme is repeated again in 1.8, 117, 2.8, and 21.6. It is woven into the symbolic tapestry that is Revelations. That is why it is repeated five times to conform to the five points of the pentagram. Revelations is much, much older than the Bible and dates back to a time when the old ones worshipped in the temple of the dog. Herein is Gershom Sloan's mystery. Satra is a word with a plurality of meanings. It can mean daybreak, but it can also mean nightfall or darkness. It is Cyrus, the morning and the evening star in the firmament over Australia a place that all but time is forgotten. Within the Kabbalistic name of Lucifer is contained the Alpha and the Omega of light, the same Alpha and Omega that Jesus lays claim to in Revelations. Satra has a third meaning, and that is to search, and search Lucifer must, because God, once called Seth, but now called Yahweh by his current Alphalites, has taken Lucifer's bride and concealed and imprisoned her within his creation. She is the life force that animates that creation, as well as Yahweh himself. She is the moon. She is the star of woman. She is the dreamer to which all is, is but her dream. The Zohar, it is, in the Zohar, it is established that even God must dwell within the Shekinah. In the Lesser Holy Assembly, chapter 21, it goes on to say, With this woman are connected all those things which are below. From her body do they receive their nourishment, and from her do they receive blessing? Cable is called a Malkah, or queen. Malkah is a derivative of the word Malkuth, which means the kingdom. 
Malkut is the tenth and final Sapphiris, the one to which all the others are manifested in the Sefer Yitzhira, Tree of Life. Malkut encompasses the entire physical world, a world that is projected through Yisad, the moon. Learned rabbis call the Shekinah the bride of the Sabbath, but no, she must dwell in exile until the Messiah comes for her. The ancient Magi called her Zoh. The Egyptians called her Isis and knew it, and the Christian shaman, still loyal to Lucifer, called her Sophia, dividing and concealing her within the three Marys of the New Testament. In corporeal form, she has been known as Balfamet to the Templars, Ville to the German National Socialists, and now electromagnetism to the mad scientist would profane her. The most opulent church constructed in recorded history, and perhaps the greatest expression of architectural arts, is Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, now called Istanbul. After its construction in the 4th century, Hagia Sophia remained the largest building in the world for over a thousand years. It was only superseded after Islamic hordes overran it and turned it into a mosque. Hagia Sophia means holy wisdom. Sophia in Greek means wisdom, skill, and magic. In, Nagamandai, in the Nagamandai Library, Sophia is revealed to the uninitiated after being hidden for close to 2,000 years. Prior to the library's revelation, what is known of Sophia came from scraps of manuscripts and Pistis Sophia, a text reported to be Gnostic. Pistis Sophia was discovered back in the 18th century. It leans heavily on the pathological misogyny of Paul and his teachings of overcoming the archons through faith. Before the Council of Nicaea, most Christians believe Sophia was the mother of the Old Testament God, whom they called the Demiurge. In the archetypical Odethia cycle, to them, she was the rightful bride of Christ. In Thunder Perfect Mind, a poem from the Nagamandai Library, a far more pagan than Christian goddess, brashly tells those who would know her to understand, for I am the first and the last. I am the honored one and the scorned one. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. The consensus among the library's manuscripts is that Sophia is one of the eight original Ogdos, four pairs of aeons or emanations that before the advent of manna manifested God through their sexual relations. Sophia attempted to manifest God without her consort, and her actions disturbed the balance. Matta subsequently came into existence along with the resulting God, or Demiurge, and Sophia was trapped in, her, in their world. In order to glorify himself, the Demiurge created man to worship him, using as a template the distorted images of the angelic world from which Sophia fell. But he could not animate man without using the same life spark from Sophia that had begotten him. Because she dwells in him, man has the ability to be God's equal, and he is able to see the difference between good and evil far more clearly than Ialdabaoth, the blind god born of the void. In the thunder perfect mind, the goddess exhorts those who would seek her out not to be arrogant with her when she is cast out upon the earth, not to look upon her when she is in the dung heap among those who are disgraced in the least places. She implores them not to laugh at her, to leave her cast out, but to cast her out among those who are slain in violence. She tells them that if they heed her words, they will find her in the kingdoms and in those that are to come. But she warns them to be on their guard, because I, I am compassionate and I am cruel. She is the whore of Babylon, exiled there with her people, because she is their collective soul. According to Gnostic law, she is to undergo repeated incarnations as a whore. 
the bride of Jesus is Mary Magdalene, who through oral traditions Christians know as a loose woman. Some say she was a prostitute. The Knights Templar, who were guardians of the grail, were told to gather in places frequented by women of ill repute. Just like Richard Wagner's Parsifal, the savior of quest for the grail, the metaphor for his lover. Lucifer is the original consort of Sophia. He is the savior of scripture. But the only thing he must save is her. Through her redemption, through, through their unification, the righteous wedding of the bride and groom, the unification of the he and the she, will this whole blasphemous creation be rolled up and deposited back in the limited light, limitless light of the supreme being to live forever in orgasmic ecstasy. Lucifer did not fall from heaven, nor was he cast out. He has no use for the counterfeit heaven of Abraham's demon god. He comes of his own accord, like a vengeful bolt of lightning, cast down from unimaginable heights, aimed at the dark heart of an abomination that dares to think of itself as the supreme being, a being whose creation consists of an endless series of organisms perpetually consuming each other.